fourth LSE Literary Festival, which began yesterday and is going to run until Saturday evening. The theme is Relating Cultures, and the LSE is continuing an exploration of the relationship between the academic cultures of the arts and social sciences, as well as the interaction between global cultures, and the power of communication, language, and storytelling. So I think we fit into that very well. Um, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Index on Censorship, which is a magazine which I edit, and since its founding um, in 1972, it, it's, it's grown into being a human rights organisation that does campaigning, has a website, projects, as well as publishing a magazine. But it's, um, it's an organisation, a magazine, that would not exist without the two remarkable gentlemen sitting next to me, Pavel Litvinov and Michael Scammell. Michael is the founding editor of Index. Um, he's a very distinguished writer, Russian expert, uh, biographer of Solzhenitsyn and also of Kersler, uh, also formerly taught at Cornell and Columbia. Pavel is a scientist, um, born in Russia, now lives in the States. In fact, Michael also now lives in the States. Um, and what we're going to do is start by just telling you the story, because it is a remarkable story, which begins with Pavel in Moscow in 1968, when there is a trial of a number of dissidents taking place. And Pavel, uh, along with a colleague, decides to make a public protest to the world. And he sends a letter, which is published in the Times, which is an appeal to world opinion, in which they write, we appeal to world public opinion uh, in the first place to Soviet public opinion. We appeal to everyone in whom conscience is alive and who has sufficient courage. So that very eloquent appeal was published and um, there was a response from the poet Stephen Spender. And Stephen Spender brought together pretty much every um, famous intellectual and artist you can think of from that time and that included A.J. Eyre, Bertrand Russell, Stravinsky, Mary McCarthy, uh, George Orwell's widow, Sonia Orwell, um, and, and many others. Um, and they sent a telegram to Pavel uh, saying that they supported him and, and wanting to offer their help. Um, and out of that uh, came Index. I'll just say very briefly at this, this time, a, a, a group was then, was then formed that included David Astor, uh, who was then the editor of The Observer, and Michael, who was sort of quietly, I think, writing a biography of Solzhenitsyn, uh, was invited to um, come up with an idea uh, for answering Pavel's request for help, and the idea was Index on Censorship, the magazine. We'll, t we'll talk about that more a little bit later, but I first wanted to talk to Pavel about um, that moment in 1968, uh, when he so bravely spoke out um, and made that appeal. Um, later that same year, he led a protest against the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, which resulted in him being arrested and exiled to Siberia. As if that wasn't extraordinary enough, he came from um, uh, a family that could be described as the Soviet elite. His grandfather was Maxim Litvinov, who was foreign minister in the 1930s under Stalin 
um, and who had, uh, at the time of the October Revolution 1917, had actually been living in England and was the first sort of English representative, ambassador, if you like, of, of, of the new government after the revolution. So the big question, Pavel, is, the first big question, is having come out of that kind of remarkable family, how, what was it that made you become a dissident and risk your freedom? Well, uh, the first part of the answer is pretty simple. It was a family of dissidents, and I just uh, continue uh, the, that line to some degree. My uh, grandmother was a, a British writer and journalist in the beginning of the century, Ivy Litvinov. Uh, she was Ivy Law. She also belonged to, uh, descended from, from some Hungarian revolutionaries. Uh, and uh, she, she was very independent, early feminist woman, uh, uh, very, very independent, and h her spirit was always in our family. Here is uh, sitting my uh, cousin. Uh, I'm not going to show where she is, but she will correct me if, uh, if I will lie in, uh, in any details. But uh, my grandmother was a very special person. She met my grandfather in London uh, because he needed a secretary uh, and uh, he didn't speak very, very good English and she started to, uh, to be a secretary and typist for him and they uh, started their romance and then uh, she gave birth here in London to two children. One of them was my father, another was my aunt. And then my grandfather was uh, arrested by English government because in, in Russia they arrested uh, uh, English diplomat and spy and very complicated story, you probably heard about him better, no better than me, named Lockhart. And that Lockhart participated in some kind of conspiracy against uh, beginning of Russian uh, Soviet Russian uh, Republic. I, I'm not sure exactly. Can I, can I just sorry, interrupt you, Pavel, yes. to say, uh, what, but where do you, do you think that the dissident strain came from Ivy Low? Your, your uh, well, at least one of the sources. Another okay. source was uh, 19th century Russian literature, uh, because in Russian, uh, we all read Russian classic from Pushkin through Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov, uh, and we didn't read uh, much more because in the Soviet Union most of the literature was uh, was suppressed. So that uh, those books were so important for us, and in those books there was one central idea: the sympathy to little man, little person. Uh, uh, who takes a stand or at least uh, harassed and persecuted by big czarist government. So did uh, you, so that was something that your family, very, that literature very much informed your family's thinking? Yes, uh, yes. my mother for example taught me to uh, poetry of Pushkin and Nikrasov and uh, it also influenced me just the idea of sympathy, sympathy, compassion uh, to people who are oppressed. So I that was probably very strong, uh, but it's very much mm. an oversimplification. Just, just to say, before this, this, this letter was published in the Times in 1968, um, there was another trial that Pavel got involved with the previous year where um, he was, you were pulled in and interrogated by the KGB. And this story was also published in the Times because Pavel wrote it all down and sent it. 
Um, and the KGB said to you, I'm just reading from this piece, just imagine if people learned that the, great, that the grandson of the great diplomatist Litvinov is busy with such doings, this would be a blot on his memory. And you replied, I do not think he would blame me. You, um, the, the other thing was that as well as being published in the Times, um, there was a broadcast on the, on the BBC World Service Russian service, and, and I think Stravinsky was interviewed. Uh, Stravinsky, I think, uh, uh, violinist Menuhin. Menuhin, yes. Menuhin. That's how we say it. Yes, yes. <laughs> in Russia, it's called Menuhin. Uh, and somebody else, I don't remember. I think Stephen Spender himself, uh, but he spoke, of course, with, the, with translation. Uh, anyway, there was absolutely fantastic thing. When they interviewed uh, those people who signed that letter, they invited Stravinsky. It was, uh, he was very old, very weak, his, his voice, he spoke Russian, uh, and he said, uh, I remember those uh, words, my teacher Rimsky-Korsakov suffered from Tsarist censorship, so I very much sympathize to Litvinov uh, for his suffering from Soviet censorship. And I all, literally, when I heard it, I started to cry. So because would, yeah. it was connection of generations. It's hundred, over 100 years. Uh, just, it was unbelievable. And uh, you have to remember that Stravinsky was almost forbidden in my childhood. We practically didn't hear. Mm -hmm. Later on, uh, some of his music started to be. Perfect. So that's been incredible sitting in Moscow to have heard that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was on BBC again, and on shortwave radio. Uh, which was at that time it was not jammed, but usually the Soviet government jammed uh, that radio, so it's very difficult to hear because they will transmit noise on the same frequency and you almost couldn't hear it. And sadly you can't hear it at all now because they've killed it and I think all that survives is the, is the website and I think there are some programs you can hear but essentially those, those, those days are gone. So, so Michael, you so see, Stephen Spender forms this council um, after having had these sort of extraordinary luminaries of their day um, um, support the response to Pavel's um, uh, plea. Um, and um, Spender comes to you and, and essentially asks you to come up with an idea, doesn't he? It uh, wasn't quite that simple, oh, uh, <laughs> as Pavel was saying. Uh, in fact, this committee was formed and they advertised for a director. Um, I didn't know Stephen Spender in those days. And I answered the advertisement and uh, after various interviews, I had been working as a freelance translator and I had started translating some of the dissidents actually into English. Um, I, was, I got the job and then uh, this committee, um, I think at the time they had 5,000 pounds. So I said, well, I can work for two days a week. Um, and uh, what do we do now? And they said, that's up to you. And the choice was to be activists, to form committees and a lobby, or it seemed to me much more appropriate, um, given uh, what Pavel has described and the, role and the activities of the dissidents, that maybe some kind of publication. And at first we thought about publishing a newspaper, but a newspaper is expensive. A magazine is much cheaper. It came out very, uh, I think, what was it, once a month in those days? And we hardly paid anybody. 
which limited our uh, contributions to a certain extent, but we took this decision, which I've never regretted and which I'm still proud of, along with the articles describing what was happening, news articles and commentary, we published original work in translation. And it is, I mean, one of the things that attracted me to Index when I, when I applied for the job was the incredible literary heritage. And, you know, in your, in your very first issue, you had Solzhenitsyn, um, everyone has written for it, Nadine Gordimer, Salman Rushdie, Ivan Klima, Václav Havel, it's, it's, it's the most phenomenal roll call of, of great, great names, as well as dissidents who are, who are obviously less well known. Um, and there was initially as well, there was a plan, wasn't there, that the index would be part of Amnesty? Well, that was the first idea, yes, because, uh, well, it, it, that still wasn't index, just the organization yes. would be. Uh, I mean, index came, uh, came out of my head, really. Um, and then, so the thing was, what to do about it? And I had a discussion with the um, head of Amnesty International in those days, Martin Ennels, um, and... Uh, he was very uncomfortable with the idea of this new cuckoo in the nest, and I was very uncomfortable with the idea of being that cuckoo. So we mutually agreed that we would have an independent organization. And so uh, it, it went from that. It was really uh, complete improvisation at the time, I would say. So, Pavel, you, you had a very, very clear idea of, of what... This, this, this organization should do. When you made that appeal, you got this amazing telegram from all these extraordinary people, and you then wrote to Stephen Spender um, saying, laying out very, very clearly what it was that this organization should be. And I just, I just want to, to, to read a little bit of what you said. Um, you said that it, that it should be an international committee created to support the democratic movement in the USSR, a committee of scholars, writers, artists. And then you said, it should not have an anti-communist or anti-Soviet character. The point, <laughs> yeah, the I'm point, you should be proud. The point is not that this or that ideology is not correct, but that it must not use force to demonstrate its correctness. Now, that was an extraordinary thing to say, considering where you were, considering what you were going through, and just could also just considering the politics of the time. And I'm just very interested to know how it was that you, that you came up with those thoughts. Well, it was one of my most important ideas that human rights are completely indi indivisible. So it doesn't matter for what... Uh, <coughs> you're persecuted, you're arrested, you're tortured, you're killed for what ideas? For communist ideas, anti-communist ideas, for liberal ideas, you, you name it, you can say, uh, and I believed on it very early from the beginning of our human rights movement, that whatever the ideas are, uh, they cannot put you in prison, they cannot censor your ideas, everything has to be published and discussed. And I, I still believe, uh, believe in those ideas. They become more complicated in, in those 40 years, but the basic idea is still the same. Um, so I think you know, those, those ideas would not be at all surprising now to anyone sitting in this room. But at that time, I think it wasn't common, was it? I think the left was still very sort of well, polarized. Yeah, 
Well, not just the left. The polarization was between left and right. Really. No, but what I mean yes. is in terms of, I mean, obviously in the mm. 30s, I'm thinking yes. of, the, yes. of the intellectual background that Spender came from yes. as well. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, on one level, it was such a simple idea. I had absolutely no problem uh, agreeing with it. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think what Pavel just said and what you quoted was the most attractive part about it. Um, I, having studied Russian and started to translate dissidents and so on, was, of course, very familiar with the situation in the Soviet Union and, to a certain extent, Central Europe. Uh, but I was also uh, very familiar with an upset about South Africa. I was very upset when the Greek colonels took over the Greek government. Uh, Turkey itself had a military regime. Um, and in, very early on in our work, South, various South American uh, military regimes began to come into existence. So in, for me, it was a very, very simple uh, matter on one level, but of course, the simple is never simple because, as you say, uh, there's a political polarization. And the, uh, the, the, um, the idea then, the idea was, well, if we were going to go out and, and uh, publish articles and, and struggle against uh, censorship and oppression in the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc, then by definition you belong to the right wing. Um, and uh, for me, this was part of uh, my own crusade, if you like, because the fact of the matter is that the biggest enemies, that the most dangerous enemies for communism were the left. Um, and the communists always went to great lengths to dissociate themselves from any socialists. The right wing was easy. That's what they expected and wanted everybody to be. Whereas uh, people who were on the left in, in the West, in this country, had an alternative interpretation of socialism, if you like. Leaving aside whether socialism itself is or is not a viable philosophy, it's certainly one that one should be free to put forward. So, um, so that was the political dimension which was difficult. But the, the human rights one, and I'll just mention this too, I remember very distinctly, uh, very soon after we started, and we were extremely short of money, as I, as I told you, I think I worked part-time uh, for Index for at least two years before we began to get on our feet. And I remember and where, going... Where was, where was your first office? Oh, I walked past it uh, on the way here. It was in Russell Street. It's gone now. It's been replaced by a big glass and steel modern building. Um, and then we moved around the corner to, I've forgotten the street, and that now is a big, right on the edge of Covent Garden. And by the way, Covent Garden was still a fruit and vegetable market in those days. And I have one room behind a p potato merchant. I remember very well. He traded in potatoes. That was his job. Um, but on the human rights uh, subject, human, I, I remember going quite soon to the United States and finding, uh, and going to Washington, among other things, and finding them very open on one level. And I was actually invited to address a, a forum at the State Department in Washington about what we were doing. And I remember a number of people, not a number, but a couple of people in the audience standing up and saying, but there's no such thing as human rights. How do you define human rights? And it was not considered, certainly not considered something that governments should do, but even non-profit organizations, NGOs, were, um, were actually blazing a new path. Amnesty International itself was, was a revolutionary idea. Mm. 
So at this time, Pavel, what was, what was happening to you? Did you know about the, the magazine in the back of the potato cellars that you'd started? Uh, no, I, I knew nothing. I wrote that letter which you quoted uh, several days before I was arrested for organizing and participating in uh, demonstration on Red Square against Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. The, and I knew I will be arrested. It was just a you question of You knew you would be time. arrested? Uh, I knew I would be arrested for the demonstration or I would be arrested for something else. But demonstration made for them work easier. And were you, were uh, you afraid? No, I already was prepared. I kind of psychologically knew that it would happen. So, and I read in the books uh, of Solzhenitsyn how it will. I always expected much worse than what happened to me. So, uh, so I kind of stopped uh, thinking and and being afraid. And I'm basically I cannot say that I was ever afraid. I just knew that that would happen if I do it. Uh, it's just a question of how much I can do before they will arrest me. And just to say that all through this time, I've, I've just been looking back through the, through the uh, archive of the Times. Where how they, the Times were reporting on you all the way through that. They reported on your arrest over of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. They, were, they reported on your, your exile. Right, right. Uh, because at that time, uh, there were much more people who later became kind of uh, activist of human rights movement, but at that time uh, there was no really movement. There were kind of circle of friends and families of Russian intelligentsia who talked to each other and distributed uh, so-called samizdat, which means typewritten. There was such an instrument, no, for, it's for young people, uh, called type, mechanical typewriter. Uh, <laughs> and it was before Xeroxes and all, all types of ma machines, you do it with just fingers. And most of us could do it, uh, I could do it only with two fingers. I, I still cannot do with all ten. Uh, so, so, and ra very rarely we, we gave that word to professional typists because you cannot trust this professional typist had to report on us. And many people didn't have type, uh, typewriters. And of course, KGB would have copies of, of the type. Uh, and then you put that uh, paper and between them there is a carbon paper. It's such a black thing uh, or blue which makes uh, copy and you can make sometimes four or five copies if the paper is uh, regular uh, typing paper. But if you will find very thin onion skin paper, you can make 20 copies. But the last one you cannot practically read. But you still are so hungry for reading let's say, uh, translation, uh, unofficial translation of 1984 that you would read the 20th copy uh, of that thing and then would give it to friend and would start distributing from town to town, from friend to friend. Sometimes the KGB will intercept it, will arrest distributors. Sometimes they will tell who, arrest, uh, who gave them that thing. Sometimes they won't. But I don't want to go uh, too far in that story. What I want to say uh, that I was very active in that beginning of, of, of Samizdat and more and more it became human rights Samizdat. We started to report mm -hmm. situation in labor camps, mental hospitals where they put dissidents, uh, uh, getting people uh, uh, out of the job, firing them, and in, in Russia it's very serious <laughs> stuff. I'm not going to, uh, in that direction. So, I mean, uh, in, in Index, Michael, was a form of Samizdat, or at least it sort of was influenced by that, the idea of making banned, unavailable literature or untranslated literature available. And also, of course, Index also published and distributed Polish and Czech 
some, some is that separately. And I'm just wondering if, you know, this, this, that extraordinary time that you evoke with that description of the, the hunger for, for banned literature and the sort of, um, that it's like contraband that you would have to distribute in very unglamorous uh, yeah. sort of a presentation. Um, and here we are where in, in this extraordinary time of, 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 of revolution for communication where you can be your own publisher, whether it's on Facebook or on Twitter or, or, or on your blog. So is there still a need for this kind of samizdat for, for, for the publication that publishes the band writer? Do you think? Joe, that's a huge jump from 1968 I know, I'm, I'm making a jump, I'm going back again. But I was thinking <laughs> since we're talking I'm about I'm happy to go there, but I want to, I want to comment a little bit on this, con sure. uh, on this concept of Samizdat and what we were doing. And we were not doing Samizdat. First of all, you have to live in, in, in a country and in a system where you cannot read certain things and you cannot distribute them. And I'm aware of that, but it's the, what I'm mm. talking about is the spirit mm. of publishing well, writing that's banned. Well, bad. possibly. I think well, where I would like to take that is that, that it was a kind of paradigm, if you like. If you looked at writers anywhere in authoritarian um, regimes, I'm thinking of places, I've mentioned Greece and Turkey. Of course, Spain had been under Franco for a long, long time. Portugal under Salazar, there were any number of places where it was either dangerous to write certain things, um, and uh, if not dangerous to write them, certainly dangerous to publish them. So the paradigm was to get these voices out, and I'd like to emphasize too that um, while there was a mass human rights movement that grew up, I was and am very committed to uh, literature and the and the idea of the writer as being very often the fine the per person who can express this the most eloquently and often make art out of what they're expressing as well even while it's politically important and uh, for me it was important to get some of that stuff in into print as well so the the uh, the yes the sensibility if you like was that um, but the idea was that it should be it should be spread widely. Now the other part of this, the opposition to censorship, uh, and one on one level it was just that. That is, we wanted to help writers, journalists, and ordinary people who happen to have something to say and wrote it down to get their word out in some way or another, in the belief that once it existed in index, it could then spread and travel. But of course it was symbolic as well. For us, censorship was symbolic of oppression and I think that's, uh, that's what it was in, in the Soviet Union and that's how the, uh, part, how the idea of human rights came sort of, it not only uh, was coeval co with it, but it actually was a bigger idea in many ways because it encompassed people's everyday behavior as well as what they were writing. So when you, were, when you were sent into exile, Pavel, where were you sent and, and what kind of life were you able to lead? Well, I was uh, arrested in Moscow and uh, after uh, that demonstration in the Red Square. They beaten me and brought to police station. Then they tried uh, me. That was a closed but officially open trial. Uh, and then eventually I was uh, shipped. Uh, I spent several months in prison in Moscow. In, and then I was shipped in special prison cars, which are so eloquently described in 
uh, in the first volume of Gulag Archipelago of Solzhenitsyn. Uh, so when they put you in special uh, kind of uh, uh, cars where uh, it has no windows and they just stuff people there and uh, move them the prisoners uh, from one city to another, but each city is a new prison. So anyway, I was brought to... Uh, why, why is each city a new prison? Well, not new, pri not uh, f physically new, another prison. Okay. Uh, sorry. Uh, it's a special transit prison, uh, so they bring enough uh, prisoners who go... The whole country was... Uh, was many many camps uh, throughout the whole country and they would have to get enough people like a charter plane moving in uh, in certain direction, certain prison so they would keep you in those transit prisons, first it was in Sverdlovsk then it was in Krasnoyarsk then it was Novosibirsk and then it was Chita and eventually from Chita by plane they took me to the place where I was in exile and worked uh, as an electrician in, in mines. Uh, oh. It wasn't that bad because I wasn't behind barbed wire since uh, I was out of prison, so it was, again, not going to go in that direction, but uh, it, it was relatively easier than, than to many of my friends who died in labor camps, who, went to, who were sent to mental hospitals. Anyway, I spent in those conditions uh, four and a half years, uh, uh, actually, I almost died there because I had very bad um, uh, case of pneumonia, and, and uh, they were, they were KGB was scared also and sent me to special hospital. What were that? Why were they scared? Me. Well, they didn't want the scandal of of me dying. So, do, so were they? Were you aware that they were keeping an eye on you? Oh yes, all the time. In, the in, in what way were you aware? Of well, that? first of all, uh, there were local people. I lived in a uh, mining village who knew everybody, in, including the agents of KGB, who would come and live there, because it was always, I was the most important in that region, uh, Chita region, uh, and they loved to come there, they could go hunting and fishing, and watching me and drinking with their bodies away from their families in Chita, so they enjoyed that thing. And did you always know who, who they were, the KGB? I knew, because people spying on them and telling me stories, <laughs> as well as they spying on me and telling them stories, so it was all very kind of n nice uh, uh, in that way, very home type of... Uh, anyway, after it, uh, uh, my term finished, they several times came with <coughs> official search in my house, many times unofficially, they would steal some stuff from me, sometimes they would come and take something on the... Uh, with, with a warrant and will threat to give me new term and at some point I was sure that they would arrest me again uh, but they didn't and I came back to Moscow and basically in Moscow I stayed for one year and three months until I uh, was forced I was arrested again on the street on the way to peaceful demonstration in Pushkin Square and, uh, and they told me if I won't apply immediately they have enough material to send me not to sanatorium, to, not to nice place where I was the first time but much worse conditions which I knew what it means many years of labor camp. So I, uh, it was at the same time when Solzhenitsyn was uh, taken to the plane and de uh, deported to Germany. Uh, so it was a time when they decided to get rid of uh, of this, some were arrested, some were 
uh, forced uh, to leave the country. So it was kind of milder time, but they thought that they would stop it, but they didn't stop. The movement continues. Uh, and in fact, when I emigrated, I was able to help my friend. We published a magazine very similar uh, to Index, but uh, pure human rights. We didn't publish any literature, Chronicle of Human Rights in the USSR. And when I came back uh, uh, to yes, four years, uh, five years after my arrest, I came back to Moscow, and I came, I will tell you a sh short anecdote, uh, I came to a friend of mine, uh, late writer and poet, Yuri Achenwald, I think, and uh, there was a very young man looking, Englishman, talked to, to me, he said, my name is uh, Michael Scammell, I said, hello, how are you? Uh, and uh, he said, I w I'm very grateful to you because I, uh, thanks to you I have a job. <laughs> and, and that's how we met. Yeah. Uh, We're all grateful to you. I think there are a lot of people in this room who are grateful to you. Um, and so how, so after you, after you came out of... Um, Exile. How how long was it before you were allowed to to, to leave? I was not allowed. I was uh, basically kicked out. Uh, they wanted me to leave. Very in the beginning, I thought I would adjust to life, but they saw that I continue to meet my dissident friend. That I I give people uh, advice how to behave when you're interrogated, uh, and uh, and they felt that I would get. Uh, again into a kind of leadership of, uh, of human rights movement and, and they basically continue to put pressure on me and they uh, arrested me, not arrest but detained me uh, on the street. It was exactly a year, was it a year? Yes, exactly a year after I came back from my exile. So a year I was kind of in intermediate uh, in some kind of limbo uh, and then I was told to leave. Mm -hmm. So I had no problem of, of getting permission mm -hmm. to leave. Michael, you, you talked earlier about the, uh, the birth of the human rights movement, really, that that period of the sort of end of the 60s, early 70s that Index was part of. And there was an, an essay that you wrote where, uh, in, in, in the early 80s where you talked about the sense of a global consciousness coming into being which Index was part of, and in which there was a feeling that, I'm quoting you, fewer and fewer writers are prepared to stand aside and remain silent. Can, do you, can you explain, or, or do you have a sort of understanding of what it was at that moment that, that, that yeah. created that, that new yes. environment? Well, of course, it's rather uh, amusing uh, and humbling to talk in the present when we have something much more resembling globalization than we had then, about a global movement uh, in the, uh, in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. But uh, I think it's fair to say there was, um, uh, to use that uh, overused and abused German word, zeitgeist. There was something in the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, which was certainly uh, not necessarily universal, but very widespread. Uh, if you think about 1968, obviously you think about the Vietnam War, the anti-Vietnam War movement in the United States, the student demonstrations, the sit-ins, and so on. But you also think about Czechoslovakia and the suppression of the of the Prague Spring um, of events in in Hungary and Poland around that time. Uh, and I think that 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 that's uh, and also I I. 
I'm trying to reconstruct it. It was a, certainly a, a time when one could hold in one's consciousness this idea of what was going on in the Soviet Union and Central and Eastern Europe, but also in Southern Europe, as I've pointed out, also in Latin America. And, and I think that this, uh, this spirit of rebellion, uh, which, which the sort of 1968 student movement uh, fostered, uh, was also turned on the Western world, too. We made a, uh, I mean, not only did we not hesitate, we made a point, I think, of publishing articles on um, media censorship in Britain. We published articles certainly on what was going on in America. Uh, we published material on France, as I recall. Uh, anywhere that we felt that there was any kind of, um, rep well, in our case, repression of opinion, taking up from what Pavel said, wherever this happens. And um, Stephen Spender himself, in an article he wrote uh, to uh, celebrate the founding of Index, pointed, out, pointed to the idea that in many ways we were, you, it was now possible to, not only to feel, but you should feel responsible for what was happening to other people in other countries. I mean, this was a sort of a later blossoming of the spirit that founded the United Nations after mm. World War II, if you like, even of the Nuremberg trials and so on. But as, as we learned, things take a long time to mature. Mm. So the United Nations, although it existed, had and still has all those defects uh, and problems. Mm. It's still not anywhere near the world government that was foreseen. So, uh, but I think in the period I'm talking about was the beginning of a real understanding that there, there, that one had a certain duty to monitor and to protest about what was going on in various parts of the world. And I guess one had consciously to be even-handed just because of those political currents that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But as I say, it's not difficult. If you genuinely believe uh, and if you have a feeling of disgust or or um, or um, uh, disapprovals too mild disgust and even hatred of oppression and of the business of censorship then it's not difficult wherever you find it to protest and to work against it. Mm. I mean I think it's interesting that looking back at index which I've been doing very intensively um, because of the anniversary mm. it's sort of been very interesting partly as I've sort of mentioned earlier because of the just extraordinary um, quality of, of what, what Index was publishing and the remarkable writers. So as I was saying earlier, Index, for example, you know, first to publish much of Solzhenitsyn in English, much of it translated by you, uh, extraordinary um, essays and plays by Václav Havel, again, because of your assistant editor who then became editor, George Tyner, who was a Czech dissident. Uh, for the first time, you know, plays by Havel, essays by Havel, and by other members of the of the Charter 77 group. Um, but th th so there's all that extraordinary Cold War dissident publication. But it is, as you were saying earlier, by no means the dominant strain. And it and and uh, you know, extraordinary stuff on on censorship in Britain. And so just 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 recently. With all the, the the phone hacking saga going on, mm. uh, I I sort of looked back to see what how Index had reported an earlier time, uh, twenty 
just over 20 years ago where there was a big inquiry into press ethics and it was mm. total deja vu. Mm. There was a piece <laughs> by David McKee, the assistant editor of The Guardian, uh, quoting none other than um, Jonathan Aitken, haranguing the press in Parliament saying that the press were run by pimps and whores and absolutely revolting and disgusting and nine years later he's done for perjury. Mm. Um, it was, and so there is a sense in reading index, mm -hmm. that there is nothing, when I sort of go back and read it, there is a sense of there being nothing new under the sun. It's all been said, uh, it's all, and that the, um, we, although obviously we're in a new age because of the internet and all, all the other ways there are of sharing information, um, the way that you conceived the human rights movement, that it should be, <laughs> that Absolutely. it should be fair-handed, that it should not be ideologically driven, is reads as freshly today, I think, as, as, as when you said it all those years ago. Um, so I'm going to come back to my question that you wouldn't answer the first time um, and say and ask you, bearing in mind how much everything remains the same and yet everything changes in terms of how we communicate, is there still a role for, for this kind of publication? You have to answer carefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <laughs> Is there a role for something? Undoubtedly. In fact, I, I find my, I've, I've been feeling rather envious of you, Joe. Uh, well, of course, the hacking scandal is, is an absolute godsend, uh, as, um, as we know, all, all journalists and investigators of one kind or another. But I think that, the, I mean, the internet is, a, is an amazing phenomenon. But when one considers the role of a company like Google, for instance, um, and its activities in the kind of countries we were writing about before, I'm thinking particularly of China, let's say, but also various other countries with uh, authoritarian governments uh, and how they conduct themselves. Um, the, uh, uh, a phenomenon like Facebook, after all, I think uh, requires very careful scrutiny. So as you say, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's taken different forms, but the, I think the impulse is there's, there has always been there to uh, control expression, to uh, limit it, channel it, push it in certain directions, and that's, that's still going to go on, um, often goes on through a legal process. Or, or international treaties um, as to whether the publication index uh, should continue in its present form. I don't want to put you out of a job since it gave me a job. Um, but the natural transition seems to be for all printed materials to the internet, uh, mm. websites in other words. Uh, I mean the, the, the national press, the international press is doing this increasingly. Mm -hmm. uh, as a writer I'm very dependent on publishers and publishers are putting out more and more e-books and fewer and fewer printed books. Mm -hmm. uh, bookstores are closing uh, certainly around the Western world, I don't know where else. So I think you have to take that very seriously mm -hmm. but I hope you'll still be there or someone like you there mm -hmm. to, to monitor what's going on. Mm -hmm. It probably is more complex now and more expensive yes. uh, to follow these things. Mm. Um, things have become so specialized it seems to me that you have to be almost a specialist to deal with any one area of it. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, ours was our way of it, it was a no-brainer. I mean, you've heard what Pavel said. Well, how could, knowing what was happening, how could you not protest it mm. on one level mm. uh, and in so many other places? Uh, uh, 
These regimes are much more sophisticated than they used to be. Think how much can be published now, mm. even in places, I mean, China is, is a, a pretty you know, uh, good example of, uh, there's still obviously a fair bit of censorship, but compared with the old Soviet Union, I think they've, you know, they, they've, they've evolved new methods. And uh, of course, we could throw in mm. contemporary Russia itself. Mm. Well, we're going to talk about that in a, in a, in a minute. Mm. But the, I think what you could say about China, in a way, is that it's a kind of ex, a control, sort of sophist, more kind of sophisticated, controlled censorship, where mm. you it allows protest to a certain level. So, sort of the exposure of local corruption mm. and the mm. way that we see sort of people doing that mm. on Twitter and, mm. and 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 so on. But that anyone who dares to criticise the party. Mm like Lu Jabot and, and others um, ends up, you know, you, are, you go to jail. So there's, it's, a, it's, it's a very yeah. controlled mm. form of censorship where more is allowed than might have been allowed before. But as I was saying earlier, Pavel, uh, everything changes, but everything um, remains the same. You are going to Russia at the weekend to protest. Well, I'm not going specifically to protest, but I will. Uh, oh, I I, I'm going to see my family, but I'm I'm planning uh, I'm planning to go uh, and participate on March 5th. There will be after election day demonstration, and I'm I, I'm going there. Uh, so, what so do you think of what's been happening with the protests against well, Putin? Well, uh, I can. It will be understatement to say that I'm very excited about all what happens, and uh, I think this new uh, movement uh, for human rights, for independent uh, life, for human dignity, uh, for free elections, and uh, practically it becomes to get rid of Putin, which is not necessarily for me the, ma the main thing, but it definitely, uh, will, they will have to get rid of Putin uh, eventually, although it might not happen as fast as they want. Uh, it's very much in the spirit of our movement for human rights. There are big differences. At our time, we had no hope. So we basically knew that our idea was completely uh, like uh, those, uh, like Albert Camus, I think, said about uh, re resistance in, uh, during World War II, that we uh, don't hope. It was pure existentialist idea that uh, we do it because, because existentialist, yes. Uh, we basically cannot uh, not do it, but we don't hope that we'll g uh, the Nazis are strong and they would do it, but we have to p um, support uh, resistance. So our idea was uh, basically expressed in a, uh, in a uh, toast which we had uh, when we would have this vodka among dissidents, we would say, let's drink for success of our hopeless business, hopeless <laughs> endeavor. How do you say uh, that in Russian? Выпьем за успех нашего безнадежного дела. So su success of something where success is not expected. Basically. That's a great, that's a good toast. Yeah, without, uh, without hope. But uh, that gave us strength that we would do it because we have to do it. And probably uh, we always hope that in the future something happens, but the Soviet regime was so strong uh, that we didn't uh, expect to beat it. Although there was one thing which I strongly believed uh, was true, that Soviet regime was at our time, at time of uh, Brezhnev and his, uh, his successor, was as strong as the people believed its strength. Uh, they were not as decisive as 
uh, and cruel as Stalin. They just hoped that people would believe the, that they are. So today, uh, new generation and much more mass movement growing among uh, uh, new uh, R Russian, I could say, middle class. I, hate all this uh, jargon, but uh, these people are much more practical. They all, most of them already traveled and studied abroad, so they already know uh, things which we pro practically never had, very few of us ever was, I never traveled uh, outside of Russia, so we, we didn't know what's going on. We only listened to BBC and, uh, and Radio Liberty and Voice of America just to, uh, to get information of, th of the world outside. Uh, Russia. So today it's different people. They m many of them have jobs were very sophisticated with computers. They could use internet and so on. And they basically have uh, have an exit which we didn't have. They can say, "Oh, to hell with, with that country. We'll uh, leave and we'll find a job somewhere in the European Union or in America and so on." Many of them are are, are pretty good and uh, and they come and go. So in a way they are less afraid because of that, but basically they also feel that they don't want to be uh, uh, insulted and uh, uh, like what happened between Putin and Medvedev when, when Medvedev suddenly said, uh, or Putin, we decided that Putin uh, will be our next president between two of us. And then he added, we already decided long ago, we just didn't tell you. And that simple phrase was so insulting for many people that it provoked those demonstrations, it provokes that moment. I mean, it was not the only thing. So it's a new level. I, I don't know how, how soon it will give progress and it might get into very uh, bad direction. Uh, but basically, the spirit is very close. I follow on internet and uh, in newspapers what happens and I uh, feel that it's Basically, they continue the same thing, although it's completely different people. They read different books, if, if, uh, if they read books at all. Uh, uh, mostly, they spend time on the Internet and uh, so on. And uh, So uh, our movement was, in, ma in more ways, difficult, different. Do you, do you think when you, go, when you go at the weekend, do you expect to see people, friends of yours, from the time in the 60s when you were all demonstrating? Oh, those who are alive, yes. Will they be out yeah, there as yes, well? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, everybody whom I know, including my family and all the old friends, uh, practically I don't know anybody who can walk who won't be on these demonstrations. Um, I'd like to ask, invite you, some of you to ask questions, if any of you have questions. And I, I don't know if there's a microphone. Yes, there is. Great. So uh, there's quite a lady here. Thank you. Um, Russia and uh, satellite countries have been having a great deal of problem, uh, suppression of free speech. There's a slight improvement there. Um, uh, but there are other countries where there is a lot of uh, suppression of free speech. Uh, I come from Sri Lanka where uh, journalists have been killed within the last five years alone. 15, more than 15 journalists were killed and they are abducted and disappeared. And furthermore, investigation into the killings or abductions are prevented by the president. 
that is much worse than killing the journalists. So there is suppression, and uh, I just wanted to bring it to the attention, and uh, others are waiting to say okay. something. Well, that, yeah, there wasn't really a question. So. Well, are there any questions? Thank you. Yes, there's a, there's a gentleman just there. Uh, first of all, thank you all very much. It's very interesting. Um, I have uh, a question primarily for Mr. Litvinov, but, but really for any of you, to, to press a little bit on the subtitle, 40 Years On. Uh, what do you all make of the uh, recent law on homosexual propaganda in St. Petersburg, uh, by which, although the law itself, part of the problem with it is it's very unclear, it appears to, as soon as it's signed into law, it will be a crime to discuss homosexuality publicly. And what do you make of this both uh, from the point of view of United Russia and its backers in the St. Petersburg uh, local parliament, but also from the response of the so-called opposition in St. Petersburg and its relative silence on this point? Okay. Uh, yes, that, that law is one of the disgusting re reactionary laws which is uh, taken from the worst uh, type of homophobes about whom I read uh, in the United States. Uh, but uh, in, in Russia, of course, uh, the development of, uh, of uh, movement for, uh, for freedom of sexual expression and for, uh, uh, for marriage among homosexuals is much less developed and there are plenty of very reactionary politicians and also completely illiterate so that uh, St. Petersburg group of, uh, of members of parliament who, uh, who produced that law I read it it also makes no sense it's, it's illogical uh, it, it could have been worse and could have been written. I, I don't think it will make too much influence and I don't think it will go uh, farther uh, if the, the government in, in, in Putin's Russia ha has any brains, uh, basically, uh, which is very strong uh, expectation, of course, uh, that they do. Uh, but still, uh, in, in St. Petersburg, in the same time, there is a very strong human rights movement. They have their liberal group of part of the movement called Yablaka, which is very powerful and, and very successful, and they get, uh, when there is a true count of votes, they get more votes for, against Putin than for Putin. So it's a kind of polarized place. Uh, but basically, homophobia and all... Uh, all the, uh, those issues are very uh, on a very low level in Russia, and a lot of people are uh, are ready to fight for many issues, but not for this one. But I know um, my friends, uh, human rights activist organization Memorial. There are plenty of people who want to speak about that and or organize some small demonstrations. But of course, uh, we cannot hold our breath that this development will uh, will go fa uh, faster there. Thank you. I, I think Pavel's taken care of that. Yeah, I don't think I can improve on that either. Um, a, a small question and a large one. The small one was how aware were you of the Universal Declaration when you created your concept 
of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The large question is about uh, the Red Square protest. Um, uh, one of Havel's ambassadors told me that they restaged this in Prague many years later. It was an immensely powerful thing. Uh, how dangerous was that moment, uh, given the suppression? I mean, you were doing something very original. I, I think it began in the basement of the, Mayak was it the Mayakovsky Museum, and, and Bogaras and all these people. I mean, how did you choose this 12 people? And, and how much danger was there as you entered and what did you do to protect yourself? Yeah. Thank you. It's a, uh, a lo long story. First of all, I said uh, it's not 12. There were seven of us who were tried. Actually, there was an eighth person, but uh, she was not tried. Uh, it was dangerous, but we uh, kind of, we didn't expect that they would kill us, but we expected that we will be beaten and put in labor camps for many years. We were relatively milder treated, at least some of us. Uh, don't have time to, to go into that story. We, we actually didn't, uh, I, when I organized this demonstration, we went from person to person, we talked about that, but very few people knew. It was August, it was, uh, a lot of people were in Dutchess, there were no cell phones at the time, many people don't, didn't have phones at home, and if they had it, we would be afraid to, uh, to talk. Uh, on, on the phones because KGB would listen. So it came to a very short, small circle. If I probably made an effort to organize uh, as many people uh, as possible, which I was not ready to take responsibility for other people, I probably would get maybe 30, 40 people at most. But we basically knew it from each other. Uh, there were some people who definitely would have been there, but they were not in Moscow at the time. Uh, so there was no choice. Whoever wanted, whoever heard about that demonstration, they came. Uh, that's to, to, to make it short. Okay. This gentleman just here. Just, uh, gentleman just here. Thank you for your talk. Um, two questions, really. When you first started publishing this material, did you f ever feel that you were putting anybody at risk by publishing it? <clears throat> and if so, how did you sort of morally deal with that? <clears throat> That's the first question. And then the second question, sorry for this too, is to what extent was the campaign for Soviet Jewry, Natan Sharansky, any different from the type of campaign that, that or, or issues that Pavel had? Was it similar or was it a, a very, very different type of issues that you were, you were dealing with, if you dealt with it at all? Um, well, the first question about uh, the danger to the people concerned, um, we generally had uh, pretty good networks. One of the things was that when we started Index on Censorship, and I don't think we could have um, acted without this, people would come to us uh, in, in very many cases. So uh, when we had a long article on Portugal, for instance, it, I believe it was a lecturer at, I'm not sure, it might have been at the LSE or at King's College, something, one of the London universities, who had contacts there and assured us that they wanted to. Now, of course, there's an issue of trust here, um, whether you trust your informants and so on. But generally, that was possible where uh, we got material that was, com uh, for instance, one of, I think, from both the literary and political point of view, one of the best things we published in the early issues was Letter to Europeans by a Greek, George Mangakis. Well, this was brought to us 
and we were informed that he was very, very anxious to have it published. It was too long for publication in a newspaper in its complete form. And, it, uh, and the links to the Greek opposition here in London were pretty strong. So uh, uh, generally, we, we, we tried to do due diligence, due diligence, as they say in America, um, to make sure that we were not harming people. I never, I, um, I'm trying to think, I never heard of anyone who complained about that. Uh, it, that it never happened, I can't, I can't say. Um, but the networks were pretty strong. The, uh, the second point about the campaign for Soviet Jewry, well, the thing about, and it, of course it's even more so now, about any, any human rights campaign is there are always, it, it, it's a plural business. There are various groups, uh, and this is all to the good, just as there are uh, uh, in, in other uh, senses in our society. There are different groups whose aims overlap in some cases and, and diverge in other cases. So uh, the campaign for Soviet Jewry, uh, as its name suggests, was it was not necessarily that these people were indifferent to non-Jews who were being harassed and sent to jail, but they said to themselves, this is the group we want to work for. As it happens, uh, in the Soviet Union, among the dissidents, there was a, a, very, a very large proportion of, of Jews, I would say, Pavel can, can correct me if I'm wrong, so that uh, it, sort of, it was uh, in, in sticking up for Soviet Jewry in one way, you were sticking up for many dissidents at the same time. So it, it encompassed both these things. We uh, were, by definition, indifferent to the faiths of the people we were, we were helping and to their background, so it, it wasn't part of our consciousness. So we were on, on different tracks, but overlapped in a great deal of uh, on a great many issues. Just, just to add, sir, to that, that is mm -hmm. a, the question you ask about whether it's whether it's um, the question of putting somebody in danger by and it's something that worries me a lot, and that I I will often say say to people, are you sure <laughs> that you mm -hmm. want your name on this? And you mm -hmm. you do get extraordinary answers from people, and I and I remember at least two extraordinarily brave women, one Russian, one Mexican saying they can't do more to me than they've already done. Um, and uh, it's very important issue, I'm glad that, that you raised it, because we were asked all the time, but uh, uh, we are afraid to speak about you, to uh, attract attention to your name, and uh, uh, because it will increase your danger, but we always said the whole point of our movement is to attract attention to us, because <laughs> we are sacrificing our freedom, uh, hope, that it won't happen to the next person. And the only thing we, we could go is to go to jail or lose at least your job or being kicked out of your country uh, as being example to people, uh, the publicity of that violation of human rights by the Soviet government. They were very sensitive to that. They didn't like mm -hmm. to be as known as, uh, as regime of Pinochet or or South Africans, they always thought about themselves as good guys. Ideologically, they were uh, mm -hmm. the most progressive country in the world. So, 
uh, whatever we, we did to them, we mm. basically could shame them. Mm. And, that's all, and for that, without publicity, it's nothing. Mm. It's like uh, d doing it in your own place and talking to your family. Mm. That's, that's all. Mm. And there is another thing. I will just add a couple of words about the Soviet Jewry. Soviet Jewish uh, movement, which appeared a little bit later than general human rights movement and became very powerful, had a very important thing. It was not really movement for Soviet Jewry, it became that one, but it was movement for freedom to emigrate from the country, which keeps society under lock and key, which uh, big one big prison. So the Jews found uh, those who wanted to go to Israel or leave uh, their own country, they became a very simple answer. We just we don't want to be against your regime or something. We want to leave that country and we have to want to reunite with our families in Israel or, or, or just want to go to the place where we can pray as Jews or uh, something like that. So, but it basically was a part of totalitarian regime which kept people under lock and key. That's, mm -hmm. uh, it just became known as a movement for Soviet Jewry, but it was part of the bigger human rights issue. Just, sorry, just one other point on this question of, you know, do you make a noise or not? That just think there's just a case at the moment, in fact, where I was told by somebody there was a young Iranian journalist who's just been arrested. She's she's a photographer, um, and I've uh, and obviously the instinct is let's make a fuss and let's write about it. Let's write to you know the Iranian government, and we've been asked not to by her family because at this point they think that it's not going to help. They don't want to inflame the situation. And so in, in, in that situation, you, you respect that, whether it's the right decision or not. Um, because you know there are obviously many cases of people disappearing in, in Iranian jails and never coming out again. But I, th I think it's, it's, it's one of the toughest, toughest calls. So there's a question here, and then there's one over there after that, and I'll come to you. Sorry, can you, uh, you got the one? <laughs> uh, why, uh, despite the fact you, that, sorry. despite the fact that uh, Russian dissident movements consist of so many famous, talented, clever people, was unable to form a party of the opposition, was unable to um, s find a person who would be uh, uh, elected during the uh, election, uh, during the Yeltsin election or Putin election. All these chance, chances were missed. Did you hear that question the back? Yeah. Why uh, people didn't, uh, the Russian opposition didn't have one candidate uh, uh, who, uh, around whom they will uh, unite? Well, it's very often that oppositions cannot uh, unite uh, around this thing. And Russian uh, fledgling uh, democracy is very young. And of course, there is uh, uh, the 70 years of communist regime, and still uh, regime of uh, Yeltsin and regime of Putin. They didn't let people develop really democratic habits. It just takes time, but uh, they will. They will, believe me. But I don't know when. 
No, I think again that's too specialised okay. for me. Now there's a lady over here who's saying yes. Um, um, first of all, thanks a lot for sharing your experiences and your examples. And then to both of you, my question is: What are your predictions for the next 40 years for free speech <laughs> and new visions? Michael. <laughs> okay. My well, one prediction I can make is there will continue to be censorship. There will continue to be um, oppression. Uh, the struggle obviously will, will never end. I don't think this is, uh, it will. It will change its ground as we, as I suggested earlier. The in, the internet. Uh, I mean, it is a double-edged sword. It's a wonderful instrument for freedom of expression, and a lot of people who could not get their word out before can certainly get it out on the internet that they couldn't before. But it also, uh, I think, offers new opportunities for controlling that expression. Uh, we, we've seen, I mentioned Google, but uh, the Chinese government itself, the Iranian government. And what we've, what we've seen is that, that uh, governments of this type, and it's always been true, I think, learn from one another. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, I mean, when we look at the situation in the Middle East, which is really the cutting edge for protest on, on one level, but uh, I don't know what experience Joe has of this, and I haven't followed it that closely. But one doesn't get the, the sense of, uh, for instance, a, a, a group of writers uh, or a group of intellectuals getting together to protest outside their own country, to the extent that I guess they can get these results internally. But at the same time, we know that they were influenced by, I believe, by Tunisia and so on. So um, the, the, it, it's a sort of protean struggle. It takes different forms. The animal changes its shape, but it's still an animal. I think that's... Thank you. Pavel, the next 40 years in, in a few seconds. Well, uh, I would predict uh, that youngest person in this room will still have enough work uh, if he would or she would commit himself herself to human rights uh, there are uh, so after uh, we all will be gone uh, here there will be still problems but I think there is definitely improvement and there is definitely more awareness uh, of the question of human rights so I am kind of optimist but there is still exists uh, Chinese and uh, North Korean communism, militant Islam uh, there are plenty of things which have to be uh, moved in the direction of re respect for freedom of speech. So I think there is a lot of things, but uh, we are getting better. Mm. I suppose from, 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 from my perspective, it's that the biggest change seems to be that where, where in, in, you know, with you in, in the Soviet Union, issues of privacy and surveillance were absolutely key in terms of affecting your right to freedom of speech and that now affects all of us because of as we saw with the news today about Google sharing our data without explicitly asking our consent so the possibilities for surveillance and the invasion of privacy I think is the biggest change for free speech because it's it now it's now going to affect every every single one of us there was a question uh, here. I'd like to just pick up on mm. one thing Pavel said which occurred to me earlier I think the most difficult issue in the com in, mm. in the immediate future and one that I think Joe and the people at Index are going to have to uh, grapple with the most is the question of faith-based belief and the conflict of those beliefs. Once we're seeing it in the United States where I live now in a very big way. Um, obviously uh, Islam has, has there, it takes many forms but it, its value system 
certainly um, encompasses uh, civil society, civil life, and and uh, lays down certain strong prescriptions. And I think that this is going to be a very, very difficult issue because faith, uh, unlike political ideologies, brings, brings a certain respect with it, if you like, and, and, and a, certain, um, a certain respect for the deep, deeply held beliefs that go with it. And I think they're going to be much harder to referee. Well, it's, certain, like. it's certainly also one of the sort of biggest mm. uh, challenges for, for supporters of human rights because, mm. and, and, you know, it puts a sort of one group of human rights supporters on one side and the free speech advocates on the other. And it's, mm. it's, 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 a, it's a very, very difficult issue. That's a question here. Uh, it's a question for Mr. Litvinov. Uh, about the impact of uh, Russian language broadcast from the BBC on listeners in the Soviet Union in the 60s. I happened to work there between 1963 and 1968, producing largely cultural and musical programs, but I never had any real idea how large our audience was, and more importantly, I had no idea how dangerous it was, either for the careers or the freedom of the people who listened. Are you able to give me any idea? Mm. How, you, you worked for the World Service and wanted right. to know how dangerous was it listening to it? What was the impact of the broadcast? Well, at my time, uh, in Stalinist times, there were people who could be reported by their neighbors uh, that they were listening to BBC or, or something, uh, and it could be a problem. In our time, everybody was listening. The most, uh, so uh, people would come to their offices after uh, evening listening to. Uh, BBC broadcasting, uh, let's say, memoirs of uh, daughter of Stalin who escaped. I, I remember everybody was listening. There was no question uh, how they, their attitudes were changing, but basically it was not a problem. The problem was that the broadcasting was jammed, and you basically uh, had a problem to... So we have the microphone back, that microphone. <coughs> I was asking about a particular period between 1963 and 1968, and during that period there was no jamming. Right, they right. Stopped jamming, I wanted to say they stopped jamming uh, early yes. in 63, and they started again half an hour before the half tanks went into Czechoslovakia. Exactly. But for right. that five years there was no jamming. Right, right. At that time it was the best time. It was actually Radio Liberty was jammed, but BBC and Voice of America was not. Uh, I remember at that time it was the best time. Khrushchev. Uh, came to uh, to the West, and he was asked about that jamming. And several times he was very annoyed by that. And he said, uh, "I remember uh, hearing him on the Voice of America saying, uh, what to listen for Russian people and what not to listen uh, is will decide uh, Soviet government." And then he stopped and said, "And also with people themselves." <laughs> <laughs> and eventually he stopped because he was asked several times. So, uh, but in 68, exactly at the night of invasion of Czechoslovakia, they started jamming again and jammed until the end of the uh, beginning of Perestroika. We've got time for one or two. Um, okay, late uh, just here. Uh, you know, the, yes. that man right behind yes, her okay. asked <laughs> for a long time. Yes. Uh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd like to know the panel's opinion on why has the West uh, failed so completely to notice Russia's slide to totalitarianism during the last 
10 years. I don't mean index, because I know there have been several wonderful issues devoted to persecution of journalists. But generally, uh, why do you think, uh, unlike your times, uh, the West was so oblivious of lots of um, human rights abuse and persecutions uh, in uh, Russia? Thank you. Not Michael, do you want to... Sorry, I didn't... Uh, not, not, not sort of understanding why um, the, the West is ignoring um, what's going on in Russia in a way that it obviously didn't in your time. Oh, so you're saying that in my time, the West did not ignore it or play it? Well, I think mm. it was more attention. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, that, that was a battle too, you know. I was just reminded, um, thinking, uh, thinking back to the, um, the 1950s, which preceded all this, and I was thinking about the, the, the man I wrote a book about, Arthur Kessler, um, when he was in, in Berlin in 1950, and he said, we need radio stations, we need magazines, we need broadcast. People said, oh, you want to start a, you know, a kind of army against, you know, people after World War II were based much more pro-Soviet, of course, than they became. He said, no, I just want to send in all these voices. Well, by the time I came along, this was a more or less normal thing to do. People contested it. So, um, so, but, so it wasn't, what I want to say is it wasn't all totally straightforward. There, there was a sort of movement in this, and there was opposition even, even then to that kind of, that was called intervention. Uh, uh, as to the present time, and Pavel can speak to this, um, I'm not sure I agree with you. Uh, I, all I can say is that sitting in, in New York and, and reading the New York Times and the magazines I read, I'm left in no doubt whatsoever about what's going on. So I'm rather shocked to hear that here, if that's the case, that it's being in, ignored or not properly covered or understood. I don't mean the present You mean... Yes, right, okay, yes, so I don't know, I mean, I, I don't get the sense that I have to say that, that that's a problem. I mean, the problem is there, but the, us understanding it is not a problem. Well, if a little bit go into history, definitely the fact of, uh, of danger of uh, nuclear war and Cold War situation made people to pay attention, people in the West pay attention much more of what's going on in the Soviet Union. Uh, one of the things which I try to uh, explain when I, w I met Western uh, journalists and Western politicians say that it's very important to help human rights movement and the changes in Soviet Union because this, uh, as a free country, as democracy, Soviet Union will be less dangerous. I'm not sure it's true, but that's what I uh, always w would say because, uh, of course, uh, the situation when uh, human rights improve is, is very complicated because when they improve for a moment we see what happens in the Middle East first there is a uh, feeling that everybody is liberated and then because people don't have democratic experience there is a old uh, tradition for example in Egypt uh, that all resistance were based on, on Muslim uh, activists uh, uh, so it suddenly goes in some kind of wrong direction. I still hope that it will change. So improvement of democracy doesn't, doesn't necessarily make world safer. But I think one of the reasons people 
uh, are not as worried <coughs> sort of about the Soviet Union uh, about because the so there is no Soviet Union, there is Russia and some other country and because uh, nobody thinks that there is a danger directly uh, uh, f from Putin's Russia uh, in that sense uh, so I think uh, the fact of some dictatorship probably s to some degree satisfies unfortunately Western leaders but I, I still would agree with, with Michael there is plenty of things uh, happening, plenty of things uh, people speak and Amnesty International is active and uh, Index on Censorship is active and, and internet you, you can find everything what's going on what governments can do, that's a more complicated story, but uh, much less, because uh, the, it's, it's a different thing. But I, I, I think uh, still people pay attention to some degree. But I, I definitely would agree with you. Uh, we want it more. Thank you. Gentlemen, just that, yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, could I ask uh, Pavel, please? Um, do you think that at any stage the democratization of the Soviet Union was possible and for it to still be the Soviet Union or if not was there a time in your life when you came to believe that it was necessary for the Soviet Union to end thank you very much well I was already in immigration when the Soviet Union ended and uh, when we were active in human rights movement we definitely wanted all uh, different nationalities which made up Soviet Union and different ethnic groups would to have more freedom especially uh, religious freedom and <coughs> uh, f freedom to, to have their own nationalist ideas, national uh, literature, things like that we, were, we had friends among uh, Ukrainians and Lithuanians and, and many others so in labor camps all our friends were sitting together and they exchanged ideas and they uh, liked each other and they kept their friendship in spite of Lithuanians always wanted to leave the Soviet Union. So there were countries basically which uh, didn't think them, uh, about themselves as a part of the Soviet Union and in the depth of their hearts they would like to leave uh, uh, Soviet Union and they consider Soviet oppression not Soviet but Russian oppression it's a long story but basically the, the Soviet Union uh, couldn't re uh, very difficult to survive uh, when people are free uh, to speak especially after so many years of suppression I personally never thought that it's a good idea or bad idea what if people cannot live with each other uh, like Ireland good idea or not uh, something happens some part of Ireland part of United States you know uh, United Kingdom you, you know better than me uh, that story so it's just uh, hopeless to, to, uh, to try to keep people against their will in, inside of that thing so it was natural that Soviet Union F fell apart. So I cannot, uh, we all thought about that, but I cannot say that I necessarily welcomed it. We could have some federation, and I, I loved uh, when I was a young uh, boy that I lived in a big empire that I could go to Ukraine, I could go to Georgia, and so on. It was a uh, kind of a certain type of pr pride I had as a, as a kid, but it doesn't matter today. We've got time for just two two more short questions. I don't know if you want to ask questions. Just a lady just here in the middle, in the uh, beige jacket, grey jacket. 
Um, this is a question about friends. Um, it may sound a bit sociological. I'm not a sociologist, um, but, but I'm, I'm interested in the way um, people functioned in Soviet times because people worked in groups, didn't they? Um, Michael Scammell, you, you said that um, you worked with people you could trust. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'd be curious to know to what extent these groups were affected by Piristroika, to what extent they were broken up by Piristroika. Um, whether they survived Piristroika, whether other groups were formed afterwards. And then what sort of effect this new Piristroika, which you talked about, Pavel, um, might be having on networks within Russia now? Um, if this isn't, a, isn't too big I, a question. Well, again, I'm not going to speak specifically about Russia. I'm still very interested in Russia. But uh, I yield to my friend uh, Pavel in knowledge of what's going on there. Um, you mentioned groups. Uh, this may not be directly answer what you were saying, but uh, I was reminded as I was sitting here and, and thinking about this whole question about um, the way I, I mentioned earlier the way certain in the West that is certain groups come together and then part. They have certain aims in common and then they they go off somewhere else. Uh, I, the essence of the thing is spontaneity, I, I think, that, that, that people come together. Uh, I'm talking now about the groups in the West, I, I think, rather than in the countries that, that, are, that we've been writing about or, or that are being actively oppressed. Uh, and, and people come together for a variety of reasons. And I think I mentioned the minefield of faith, saying, well, compared with politics, it seemed to me to be simple. But I'm just reminded that in politics, too, uh, the fact of the matter is, and I don't think one should be naive about this, uh, when um, a magazine like Index is publishing material on a particular country, uh, and as I say, a lot of it was brought to us, it probably still is being brought to Joe, or we go out and seek it. Well, many of the people that we were getting the information from had, had their own particular agendas. Very often that they were members of what was then the opposition to the government in power. Uh, they were perceived uh, as democratic or more democratic than the regime in power. But I'm also, I was also reminded that you should be careful what you wish for. And one of the examples I, uh, I like to cite in this regard is that when Index was started, we published a lot of material on Iran. And it was about censorship under the, under the Shah. And uh, we worked with a group of Iranian intellectuals who were based in Paris, some of them quite left-wing, and the ones that we knew were quite left-wing. Well, eventually the Shah was toppled, and this group came to power, including some of the people we knew. Uh, and then uh, one by one, or, or two by two, they were picked off, and we ended up with the regime that you have now. Uh, and now, some of the people who would have been not would have not been in our favor then are now against what's going on there, and so one so it's shifting alliances, and you have to keep your eye on the ball. And, and one of the things I'm also reminded of: this conversation has veered into actual political action and politics a lot of the time. And what we tried to do, at least, was to stay not necessarily above it, but to stay clear of it and say, we're concerned about freedom of expression. It's not what you say or what your goals are. You should have the right to say it. Beyond that, we're not going to say that you're right. And, and I think part of the reason is, and I think this, what's happening in the, civil, in the Middle East shows this, is happening in, has happened in the former 
republics of the Soviet Union itself in places like uh, Turkestan and Kazakhstan and so Belarus. on, and many, many, many other countries. Uh, it's, the, um, it's, the, it's the consciousness, if you like, doesn't change. Uh, or, or take a case like Iraq. Uh, uh, America and its allies invaded in Iraq, and how long have we been there? Ten years or more? Uh, but the, uh, the culture hasn't changed. Uh, it, it's like you replace one, one, one set, well, I won't say, well, one dictator with someone who has the potential to be another. And I think this illustrates what happened in Russia. The idea was when the Soviet Union fell, there would be, as Pavel said, everybody cheered, there would be a democracy. But Russians are Russians, and not just because they're Russians, but because they lived so long under those conditions. So we can say everybody should have a right, uh, we, we hope, to be heard. But what they, what they themselves wish for is not always necessarily what we would wish for. I completely agree with Michael. I just want to say that there are many things which happen today uh, in, in Russia are not necessarily uh, going in, in democratic development. Uh, for example, there is more and more influence of some extreme right-wing groups and, uh, and the worst reactionary elements of Russian Orthodox Church. And basically, Russians still, uh, I see it even among people whom I know and my friends, have to get used to be more tolerant, respect other people's opinion. Because uh, uh, it's very easy to find to be today against Putin. But to be against Putin doesn't mean that you will bring democracy to Russia. It's, uh, Putin is just a symptom of what is much deeper. Uh, he has to go, I agree with that completely, but uh, it doesn't mean that, that we'll have immediately democratic paradise there. It takes time to respect law, uh, re respect human rights for anybody whom you dislike. Uh, uh, very few people uh, respect rights of gays, uh, not speaking even about gay marriage. Uh, there is so, so many uh, things, uh, the, the hatred to Muslims and so on, and it's very deep seating. Even the, the best people are not necessarily, uh, uh, for example, uh, criticize Putin for his uh, support of, uh, of Assad. And when I wrote uh, in my Facebook and among friends, uh, some things against Putin. Everybody uh, likes it, everybody supports me, and so on, and we uh, speak the same language. When I, say, uh, I, I wrote, and there was one girl who went to one person demonstration in Moscow, uh, Putin stopped supporting uh, Assad. She was one person uh, picket. Uh, she, she was even detained for, for several hours. And when I wrote to support her, almost everybody ignored me. Not because they, they like Assad, just because that's not what, what they feel, feel responsible for. And uh, so there are many, it's just an example of things which, uh, that things are not that simple. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid we're going to have to end there, um, although there is so much more to discuss with Pavel Litvinov and Michael Scammell. Please give them a, a very big round of applause.
thank, thank you very, very much for being such a fantastic audience. I'd just like to say a few thank yous to Sarah Rhodes and Eve Jackson at Index for making tonight happen. And a huge thank you to Louise Gaskell at the LSE, if she's here. I don't know where she is. But this tonight wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't be sitting with Pavel Litvinov and Michael Scammell without her. So a huge thank you to Louise. Um, to say to all of you as well, if you're interested in reading Index, we have some free copies, uh, recent issues here that you can take first to come and get them, grab them. Um, if you want to support Index, um, we've got our annual Freedom of Expression Awards on the 28th of March, and um, you can find out about that on our website, indexoncensorship.org. Um, and you can also subscribe to the magazine. But thank you very much to all of you again for coming. <laughs>